Hello and welcome to the Spike Podcast. My name is Ella Whelan, I'm the Assistant Editor of Spike. And as you can hear, I'm starting 2018 sounding a little rough, but that's okay because we have some brilliant guests this week. Mariam Namazi tells us why she feels betrayed by the left's inability to support the Iranian rebels. Tom Slater gives us the goss from Fire and Fury, the salacious Trump book by Michael Wolfe. And we hear an extract from the Spiked Reviews discussion with Christina Hoff Summers on why, despite all the negatives, she's still a feminist. At the end of last year, Iranian citizens began protesting against the Islamic regime. This has happened before. In 2008, the Green Movement was speaking out against what many saw in Iran as a fraudulent election. But now, with protests carrying on into 2018, it seems that today's Iranian rebels are different. Women have been removing their hijabs and waving them at security guards in acts of defiance. Workers are coming out on strike. And in cities all across the country, not just in Tehran, people are demanding an end to the regime. So... What is the significance of all of this? And more crucially, why are so many in the West unwilling to celebrate these acts of bravery? To find out, I spoke to the British-Iranian secularist and human rights activist, Mariam Namazi. So can you just tell us and our listeners what is happening in Iran? Because we've seen some exciting uh, images and video footage of women pulling off their hijabs and waving in the air in protest and then others shouting quite serious political statements like death to Rani. What are the Iranian rebels protesting against? Yeah, if you look at the recent protests now in Iran, they are the culmination of protests that have been taking place over quite a long period of time. And it's basically reached to this explosive situation. I mean, if you look at Unveiled Women, for example, this is a movement that's been taking place for a while, women coming out, unveiling and uh, challenging compulsory veiling rules. And of course, uh, with labour strikes and protests as well, there have been lots of protests uh, for uh, labour rights, for the right to organise independently from the government, for the right to strike and association, and of course, uh, for Things like back paid wages, people haven't been paid sometimes for a year or year, two years. And rather than taking the employer to court or trying to solve the situation, the Iranian regime has attacked protesters. So you've got people, workers and labor activists being flogged for organizing May Day events and being given long term prison sentences. And of course, because Iran is such a young population, You've got a lot of youth and student protests from everything from, uh, you know, um, gender segregation at universities to the types of lessons that they're given and so on and so forth. So it's it's all just come to the situation now where this uh, the protests against unemployment, rising prices and, of course, corruption has come to a head. And a lot of the slogans are um, also against the Islamic regimes uh, sort of uh, ventures abroad, you know, it's it's imperialism in the region. So it's in influence and intervention in Iraq, in Syria, in Gaza, in Lebanon, whilst people are starving uh, and, and don't have enough to eat. 
So the protests are, of course, primarily economic reasons, poverty, unemployment, but they're also very much linked to this demand for freedom. And what people are saying in the streets is that whether it's for economic reasons, whether it's social, whether it's political, whether it's people's rights and freedoms, all of these are directly linked to an Islamic regime in Iran. And they're saying they don't want an Islamic regime anymore. And how does this situation differ from the 2009 Green Movement protests? Because there has been some comparison and it seems that the protests are more daring. They're less kind of tied to reformists. I know that there have been some protesters shouting no to conservatives and reformers alike. I mean, is it very different to, to 2009? Yeah, I think the protests in uh, 2009 were very different to the protests today. They were also challenging the Islamic regime, but there was some sort of allusion towards the reformist faction of the regime. And one of the things we've said all along is that the so-called reformist faction is just a ploy to sort of stop the explosive situation in Iran, because both the reformist faction and the conservative faction want an Islamic uh, system. They want an Islamic regime. In fact, anyone who runs on the reformist platform has to be approved by the Supreme Spiritual Leader, the Guardian Council, and has to be one of the top pillars of the Islamic system. So it is a farce really to make that distinction when you look at the fundamentals of things. The only difference really fundamentally is how they think it best to maintain the Islamic system. I mean, if you use the word reform, it has real social meaning in the sense of reform for changes. You know, there is no uh, sort of reform coming from that reformist branch. There's no change in the veiling rules, the stoning rules, the rules for amputations or a woman's status under Sharia law. It's all about, you know, politics and uh, how best to maintain the regime. This time round, there is no illusion towards uh, either faction. It's clearly protest against the entirety of the regime. So their slogans against both the reformers, reformist branch, let's say, let's not call them reformers, because reformers are good things, really, because at least it helps to improve some aspect of people's lives. But the reformist sec- uh, faction or the conservative faction, and it's very clearly saying that we want freedom, we want bread, we want work, and we don't want an Islamic regime. It's very, very clear. And of course, also uh, uh, criticizing the the corruption and the Islamic regime's intervention in countries abroad. You know, Iran is a very rich country, but nearly two thirds of the population live under the poverty line. It's outrageous. And when you think that skilled workers like the HEPCO workers, you know, who haven't been paid for so long, they're not getting paid. They're hungry. It just shows what a state it is for everyone, really, including non-skilled workers and others. Can you just tell us some more about the role that women are playing in these protests? Because that's something that I know you're very outspoken about in terms of women's rights. And it's, you know, one of the very exciting differences in in this in these 2018 protests i mean what significance does that have as a whole in changing the way that these rebellions are are moving towards yeah i think women have played quite a huge role even in previous protests i think one of the things is that any rebellion and revolution or um you know uprising in iran is definitely a female one it has been for a while and i think 
we see very much that whilst women are the first targets of the Islamic regime, there seem to be extensions of the national honor, of religion, of, uh, you know, family honor, and so on and so forth. And, and therefore, much of the controls are focused on women, whether it's segregating them, whether it's veiling them, whether it's denying them, even the right to travel, for example, outside of the country without a male guardian's permission. We hear this about Saudi Arabia, but it's the same rules in Iran as well, which we often don't hear about. And of course, you know, having secondary class citizenship, woman's testimony being worth half that of a man's, not having uh, very many rights in the family. And of course, you know, you've got stoning rules which are uh, predominantly used against women, though men, of course, can be stoned to death as well. But, you know, there is this focus and targeting of women because women are seen to be the extensions of the Islamic regime. And uh, so it's very ironic that you know, they haven't been able to control women and they haven't been able to put them in their place, which is exactly what Islamists and the religious right always like to do is to put women in their place. And and so, you know, we're also seeing uh, conversely that the front lines of resistance are women and some of the most iconic and things that will really uh, be remembered in history in these protests and others are the ones that women have played, you know, women removing their veil, uh, though it's compulsory and punishable by imprisonment. And of course, now we know just a few days before this recent protests, we saw the Iranian regime back down and say that they're no longer going to arrest women who aren't uh, properly veiled. They're going to give them moral lessons and moral guidance. Again, that's, you know, it, it taking a step back because it's unable to control the numbers of women that are doing that. Coverage of Iran and, and what's happening there in the West, certainly in the UK, has been minimal and it also has been cautious there's been a kind of unwillingness to really celebrate the demands for democracy the kind of bare-faced as you've just described in relation to women the kind of like defiance um in front of the islamic system i mean what how do you explain that that kind of uneasiness about discussing the revolts in iran the problem is that people do see uh, iran and even so-called muslim communities in the west as homogenous they tend to think that by defending uh, those in power, they're defending the community and society. And of course, we know that's not the case. There's lots of dissent and protest within so-called Muslim communities, as well as so-called Islamic societies across the globe. One of the uh, problems is that, you know, for so long, the uh, a large section of the left, and I'm someone who's firmly on the left myself, have seen... Um, themselves in a position where they feel that they need to defend the Iranian regime in order to defend people of Iran against U.S. militarism. And of course, that's not the case. You can oppose U.S. militarism, as I do, and oppose the Islamic regime of Iran. To me, there are two sides of the same coin. And because of this, you find that, you know, someone like Jeremy Corbyn has been completely silent on these protests. Of course, he's done a lot to support the Islamist movement, as have, of course, the right wing and the Tories. Let's not forget that their relations with Islamic states and movements are also not something that we shouldn't we shouldn't expose. Uh, but I guess w when it comes to labor and the left, you have more expectations of them to support movements and revolutions that are 
of the poor, of the disenfranchised, of the working class, you know, women-led, young people wanting bread, wanting freedom, uh, wanting uh, work. You know, how can the left be silent on these protests? It's such a betrayal. It's it's unmentionable, you know. And uh, yes, Trump has said things about the protests. Let's not forget that just yesterday, Trump was refusing Iranians access to uh, the U.S., saying that we're all terrorists and making us, seeing us as one and the same with the regime. Now, suddenly, he has compassion for the protests in Iran. You know, these are all political games that they play. But we as a people don't have to play their game, the game of those in power. We have to see who our allies are, whose movements we need to defend and support and do that as people, you know, people to people solidarity the type of solidarity that has helped to change the world for the better. Uh, You know, think of the civil rights movement in the United States. Think of the anti-apartheid movement, that people-to-people solidarity that had nothing to do with the games that those in power were playing. And the same needs to be done today. The, The fact of the matter is that what's happening in Iran could herald a new dawn for not just people there, but people across the globe. You know, with an Islamic regime in Iran, one that expropriated a people's revolution and made it seem like it had popular support, even though it came on the back of widespread repression, uh, changed the world for the worse. You know, we, we saw the rise of Islamism, and not just Islamism, the religious right, the Christian right, the Jewish right, the Hindu right, the Buddhist right. A change now that challenges the religious right in power will have effects on challenging it in the United States, in Europe, and in the Middle East, North Africa, and elsewhere. So it is something that needs to be supported wholeheartedly and one that, you know, we shouldn't compromise on. We need to fight on many fronts. We don't just fight for gay rights and say, well, if we fight for women's rights too, we're going to not be able to fight for gay rights properly, or we can't really defend refugee rights. Because then what happens to children's rights? We understand that when it comes to rights, we need to fight on all fronts because these are interlinked together. You can't fight for one form of rights without defending other forms of rights. It's the same here, too. We need to be able to fight against militarism and against uh, Islamism and defend people, universal values, freedoms, the right to work, the right to eat and the the right to be free from religious dogma and restrictions. That was Mariam Namazi on the protests in Iran. Now for our next guest. Michael Wolff, a notorious American journalist who is known for being cavalier with the truth, has published a tell-all book on Trump called Fire and Fury. Among other things, it claims to give an insight into what life is really like in the Trumpian White House, complete with rumours of fights with Melania, the First Lady, Trump eating cheeseburgers late at night, and even the claim that he didn't want to become president in the first place. There is scepticism about the relevance of the book, but it certainly has given power to the argument that Trump is not fit to be president. So, what's in it, and how seriously should we take it? Spike's deputy editor Tom Slater gives us the lowdown. So Tom, to start off with, can you tell us what do you make of Wolf's book? Well, I think it's something you've got to take with a pretty big handful of salt for a couple of reasons. First of all, a lot of this is kind of repackaged gossip and kind of palace intrigue, stuff that we've heard about ever since the beginning of the Trump presidency. It's just kind of all in one place and it's most kind of crazy caricatured um, form. The second thing to note about it is that, of course, Michael Wolff has a bit of previous in terms of having a slight light touch in relation to the truth, narrativizing things. It really plays out like kind of high drama soap opera. And he's been criticised in the 
past and not quoting things directly, relying on kind of third-hand sources and creating a picture as if he was there when oftentimes he wasn't. And even in the author's notes of the book, he notes the fact that this is really a collection of different people in the White House's perspectives on what was going on rather than what it is itself. There's been some questions about the factual inaccuracies here or there, a claim that Trump didn't know what Brexit was, even though he'd been tweeting about it for months and all the rest of it. But in a way, I think that's kind of secondary, because whilst the book definitely paints a pretty bleak picture of a White House that is completely in disarray, unhinged, people leaking against each other, at the centre of it, this kind of childlike president who potentially never wanted to be (laughs) president in the first place. But really, I think it was the aftermath to the book, um, which really showed where the real problem lies. First of all, you had a media response, which was just this kind of feeding frenzy, this excitement going pouring back over these kind of old details in this salacious book because it perfectly fit the kind of anti-Trump narrative that he was unhinged and it kind of fed that tendency to just kind of pathologize Trump and write him off as a rude rather than really look at why he ended up there in the first place and the second point and the more important one really is Trump's reaction to it you know he went on this crazy Twitter storm of calling himself a stable genius in response to claims that he was kind of slightly unhinged as it appears in the book he sent out his surrogates to just defend him in the same way a kind of flunking authoritarian regime would and really just showed how irrational how all over the place and how really just driven by ego rather than politics all of his administration is so we can talk about the book there's some there's some funny and interesting things in it but i think the aftermath of it really showed more than anything what america and the rest of us are up against yeah well tell us one of those funny things in the book there's been a couple of stories flying around certainly his reaction to it in terms of the stable genius makes you think for those of us that haven't read the book what what's in this <laughs> well a lot of the stories kind of center around well first of all there's kind of the more shocking things around the campaign so this is one thing which is hard to really believe but it's the idea that this, this was effectively a bid for trump to just become a little bit more famous that got horribly out of hand so you hear about these meetings happened beforehand everyone from kellyanne conway through to um steve bannon all basically knowing it wasn't going to happen and then having meetings and job interviews plans to set up trump tv and then suddenly they win (laughs) and stories of Melania in tears and as it says in the book not tears of joy and then just suddenly Trump deciding in typical Trumpy fashion that actually he deserved to win and this was all about him and suddenly he was the most presidential person of all time beyond that a lot of the stories tend to focus on really the idea that he's unfit to be president and a lot of these stories whilst they might confirm a lot of what we might already kind of think seem do seem a little bit over egged so an aide going to him to explain the constitution getting as far as the fourth amendment looking back at trump and he's staring to space and playing with his bottom lip things of that nature so there's a lot of it in there all of it will be poured over many of it's already been challenged already but i think the thing that we've got to take away from it is that the extent to which it rings true it's because things that we've already suspected in in the first place and the bigger question is about what trump means as a political phenomenon not the fact that he apparently has three tvs in his room in the west wing and likes to eat cheeseburgers long into the night that's kind of salacious secondary stuff really well you mentioned there his team it's arguable that steve bannon trump's former chief strategist has perhaps been the biggest casualty 
of this book because after he's left the White House last year, he's now been denounced by Trump and kind of excommunicated. I mean, what does this book and the fallout for Bannon tell us about his role specifically in Trump's rise? I think the one thing that you can really take away from it is that it proves that the main thing Steve Bannon was good for was giving entertaining quotes to the media. This really is kind of his book in many respects. You hear Michael Wolff talk about how um, he really developed a big relationship with Steve Bannon. And it's very much his take both on the White House and the machinations and the factionalism that he's talked about in other interviews, but also in terms of Bannon presenting himself very much as the kind of intellectual ballast for the whole thing. His kind of quite downbeat sort of declinist economic nationalist tea party populism is very much what he was presenting as the kind of power or at least the substance behind the sort of Trump throne. And indeed, that's the thing that's enraged Trump throughout Steve Bannon's quite short tenure in the White House, appearing on the front cover of Time magazine as this kind of Svengali-like figure, even being quoted as saying he's Trump's brain. So those are really where a lot of the tensions moved into it. But I think one of the things that, taking a step back from Bannon's take, which really forms the basis for a lot of this book, is the fact that it really shows how over-egged his role was. I think it suited Bannon's narrative to present himself as really important, but really it felt quite opportunistic. It allowed him to lend his own set of ideas a kind of purchase they might not otherwise have had even if he does tap into some level of discontentment amongst American people Um, and it also suited the media because they could peg the Trump thing to this quite dark narrative this guy who had these dodgy flirtations with the alt-right and all the rest of it so it suited them as well Um, but I think one thing that we've seen over the last couple of months especially if you think about how the Alabama Senate race played out where you had Trump back one candidate from the establishment Bannon back Roy Moore then Roy Moore wins the nomination Trump switch size and then Roy Moore loses after all these allegations come out just shows that Trumpism let alone Bannonism kind of exists separately to those two men they might have been conduits of it at some point they might have tapped into it on some level but this is bigger than them the thing about Steve Bannon is that he thinks it's all about him well one of the most important things that have come out of the book is this claim by Wolf that Trump is unfit to be president uh, that there's a kind of heavy hinting towards the fact that he is possibly mentally ill. And certainly, you know, he, you can call his conduct on Twitter or even in press conferences certainly unhinged at times. He does seem to be dark raving mad at points, which is a kind of funny thing to say. But seriously, there are serious kind of questions, psychologists kind of analysing him on the spot. I mean, what do you make of that claim that he is actually mentally ill? Well, this seems to, in a way, be, as you say, kind of Wolf's main point and the thing that he's really worried about, because he talks about a White House in which everyone kind of knows that this guy's not up to it, either because he's got dementia or he's just completely incapable of focusing um, and that they're all just kind of trying to rationalise it and keep the show on the road and exert influence however they can to suit their own purposes or just to protect America from him. Of course, he is incredibly unstable and unhinged. He's incapable of articulating himself. You see this even in actually reading um, in the book transcripts of his speeches, which we've all seen before, which look even more strange um, than they do when you actually hear them, just these mad tangents no clear thread no clear policy throwing out things which he then completely disavows later on all of that is not the sign of someone who's got their their shit together that being said i think a lot of the discussion about the mental health stuff on the one hand it's quite questionable i mean there is this convention particularly in american politics i think it's called the goldwater convention that psychologists don't try and psychologize and diagnose people from a distance that's someone you haven't examined that's quite a dangerous thing to do and of course with trump and the resistance and all of this it has just got a lot of people excited about the idea that they could force him out on this basis via the 25th 
Fifth Amendment, put Pence in place on the basis that he's incapacitated and unfit. But I think it gets away from more important things, one of which is that the main reason that Trump is so destructive and unhinged is that he really doesn't believe in anything. And there's really no check on what it is that he's going to do. It's unclear what he thinks from minute to minute, the influence that people have if they just happen to be the last person who spoke to him and that really creates for a situation in which there is no clear basis on which he makes these decisions and that's really really unstable well so given the fact that we have just spent the last eight or nine minutes slagging off trump and with all that we know about trump in relation to wolfsburg and the stuff that we just see him saying on telly the golden question is how did he ever end up becoming president in the first place that is the golden question i think the one thing that we've really got to sort of reframe in terms of this debate is recognizing that of course trump was an anti-establishment force but he was never really a challenge to the establishment the establishment was crumbling it was struggling to pick up support it really reached its nadir and hillary clinton someone who really summed up an elite that was detached from what they wanted that um, was disdainful of their opinions willing to just kind of slam the deplorables but trump was never really certainly wasn't a solution to it and in many ways was just the kind of extension of it And I think that really what we're seeing is that the old order has kind of collapsed. And because things are so unstable, because these this old politics is so spent, you end up with someone like Donald Trump, who people will invest something in just because he might mix things up. There's so much desire for change. But I think what this book and all the discussion just reminds us is that really Trump is just someone who have it with the old kind of edifices having collapsed. He's just there playing eating cheeseburgers in the rubble and the question now is what does a real challenge to the establishment look like because it's quite clearly not donald j trump that was tom slater on michael wolf's book fire and fury now for our final guest in last month's spiked review i spoke to christina hoff summers the factual feminist about why feminism had had such a big revival I spoke to Christina about how feminism became so out of touch with women's experiences. She gave me a few myth busters, after all she is the factual feminist, and more importantly, I asked her why, even after the reputation feminism has garnered, she still calls herself a feminist. Here's an edited section of our chat. First of all, Christina, why do you think feminism has dominated the news recently? Well, I think the election of Donald Trump had a lot to do with it. I mean, he's a problematic individual, no matter what your politics. But this election has created havoc among uh, feminists, uh, moderates, and hardliners. Even before he became president, many thought of the United States as a an oppressive patriarchy. <laughs> but after his election, many, I think, believe they're living out, you know, Margaret Atwood's Handmaid's Tale. So they've gone into full resistance mode. So you're saying Trump is basically to blame? Look, for many people, including myself, his election was mortifying. I mean, for me, because I think he lacks a moral compass and and the requisite knowledge to be a world leader. But for some feminist hardliners, it was the realization of their worst nightmare, everything they'd read in their gender studies textbook about the toxic masculinity and an oppressive patriarchy. They saw it all come true around them. You know, this was a distorted view. He's, As I said, he's problematic, but not for the reasons they think. We're not living in the handmaid's tale. Is there a generational divide with feminists today? Do you think you often hear older feminists kind of uh, disagreeing with what a younger generation has to say? Yes, but here people say that. And they say, well, just the world is changing. And this is how young people are thinking. As someone who has 
studied the contents of gender studies for many years. No, this is what many young people have been taught in their women's studies classes. These oppression theories and these sort of eccentric theories that focus on the idea that we're oppressed by uh, being women in, in our bodies and so forth. This comes out of gender studies. I don't think this was a spontaneous movement among young women. I think that uh, gender studies has very little intellectual diversity, but any students that major senators are exposed to it will get this list of oppression statistics and, and they don't hear the counterpoints. It's never given. So is this internalized oppression been coming for a long time? It's not just crazy young women, as some anti-feminists might like to make out. I, I was, I've been reading these things since the early 80s. And uh, it's just that it's gone more mainstream. And I think it's because these, you know, a certain number of gender studies majors graduated and went into journalism or activism. And this is the style of feminism they're promoting. What do you make of the sexual harassment epidemic that has become pronounced in the Me Too phenomenon towards the end of last year? Are women really in constant danger of being harassed in the workplace? There's no evidence of that. What we see, cases like Harvey Weinstein or Charlie Rose, many of the others, involved these very high-profile pro men in unusual environments where there was no accountability. So they're atypical. If you're in an office, any kind of typical workplace with a personnel director or a boss who has some standards for civility and respect, the serious problems are far likely to arise. It's hard to find good research on sexual harassment. It's hard to define it. and The numbers are all over the board. But the most reputable study I saw was carried out by the, it's called the General Social Survey at the University of Chicago. It's probably maybe the most trusted source of data in social science. And in 2014, they asked a, a random sample of American women, in the last 12 months, were you sexually harassed by anyone while you were working? And 3.6% said yes. And that was down from 6% in 2002. Now, these results suggest it is a problem, but it's not suggestive of a massive war on women in the workplace or anything like it. So, you know, that's what we know. Well, if that is the case, why is there this accepted wisdom that sexual harassment is at epidemic levels? Well, people are carried away with stories. And in fact, it's a principle of uh, critical theory and intersectional theory that in order to discern what's truly going on, don't rely on, they say, don't rely on statistics. Those are shaped by, you know, masculine ways of thinking. So listen to women's stories. So they're listening to each other's stories and crediting them because it's also a principle that you should believe women and not, not be skeptical. But the problem is the, that you have to know if the stories that they're telling are true and do they represent the experience of most women. The best research we have suggests no, they do not. Well, what's the consequence of this panic about sex. I mean, does feminism need to start thinking about what it's doing to relationships between men and women? Yes, it does. And it has to be aware of the importance of due process and not presuming guilty, guilty because accused. And that's um, not only morally wrong, it's socially corrosive. Men and women do work together. We are working together in office places, <laughs> everywhere. 
and for the most part, it's working. Uh, and I'm afraid they're going to introduce panic. They already have. What's going to be the outcome? And I think it's going to be a lot of isolation and loneliness because I just think it's going to be frightening for many people for a while to um, interact in the workplace, certainly if you're not supervised. Because now any woman has the power. If you're a man, a young man, any woman can destroy you with one accusation, even a false one. Well, finally then, Christine, I have to ask, why do you still call yourself a feminist when so much of feminism today is at odds with what you believe in? Well, I became a feminist in high school, <laughs> way back in the last millennium. But the feminism I grew up with doesn't have that much in common with what passes for feminism today. It wasn't about denigrating men or fixating on victimhood. It was about being free. It was about being a self-determining being. So sometimes I ask myself, well, maybe we should just label, maybe I should now label what I am as a humanitarian or an equalist. And I'm tempted, but I still think the world needs a strong reality-based women's movement. I mean, most of the battles for equality and opportunity in the U.S. and Great Britain and other countries in the West, these have been fought and largely won. But there's still a lot of work to do across the globe. There are uh, fledgling women's groups struggling to survive in the face of sometimes violent oppression. I'm aware that in the minds of many, uh, feminism connotes male blaming and a paranoid worldview. And I'm, I am mortified by all the fuss about trigger warnings and telling people to check their privilege and words like mansplaining. I think feminism has been hijacked by extremists and um, I'm just not ready to cede it to the trigger warners or the safe spacers. You've been listening to the Spike Podcast. To get your daily dose of spiked opinion, head to spiked-online.com, subscribe to our podcast feed. And if you enjoyed this week's podcast, please share it on social media, let us know, and donate to us today by following the link. Thanks for listening.